This is the Sunday Night Health Show with Maureen McGrath. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. Schizophrenia is a chronic brain disorder that affects less than 1% of the population. When schizophrenia is active, symptoms can include delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, trouble with thinking, and lack of motivation. However, with treatment, most symptoms of schizophrenia will greatly improve and the likelihood of a recurrence can be diminished. Matthew Dixon is a Canadian with lived experience of mental illness, schizophrenia. He helps people with mental illness in developing countries get the basic mental health care that they need. He is improving mental health in developing countries at mindaid.ca. He's a public speaker, a schizophrenia advocate, and he's been on WebMD, CBC, Thrive Global, Yahoo, and now I'm delighted to welcome him to the Sunday Night Health Show. Good evening, Matthew. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Mental illness is such a concern for so many people the world over. There's such a stigma associated with it. Uh, you know, it's it's something that we really need to combat uh, in this lifetime as soon as possible because it really can prevent, that alone can prevent a good quality of life. Matthew, would you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your own personal journey with mental illness? Yeah, so I grew up in New Brunswick in a small town and went off to university. And that's when my symptoms started to creep in. This was the early 90s. Uh, my youth before then, like in high school and whatnot, was, was fine, just pretty average, no complaints really. And But I had some symptoms creeping up, uh, things like uh, low motivation, low energy. I started to get blunted uh, emotionally. Uh, I... In the middle of university, I bicycled across Canada, and I still wasn't feeling the best uh, mentally doing that, but I could still do that. I was taking engineering, getting mostly A's. I was living on my own, uh, okay for finances and whatnot. But uh, throughout university, it sort of got slowly worse, but I could still do stuff. At the end of university, it hit really hard, and I went from sort of muddling through life a little bit to flat on my back, incapacitated, not knowing whether I was going to live or die from one moment to the next. I was in the psych ward in the hospital in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and that was the start of my journey through this and my recovery. So that was back in 1994 when I went into the hospital, and uh, I got on a medication. It's an antipsychotic, commonly used for schizophrenia, and I stayed on it. I'm still on it today. I'm 51 now, and it took about 27 years for the symptoms to go away. I can, I can name the day, February 11th, 2021, and my symptoms stopped. I noticed an improvement in my health every single week for those 27 years. And the last year and a half, last two years or so, I've sort of had time, I've, I've had times of peace and contentment. I get to think clearly. I have thoughts that don't go round and round in circles. I get full, complete thoughts with a period at the end. <laughs> and it's uh, quite wonderful. I stay on my medication. I'm not going to go off it. Um, you're going to have a hard time getting me off that drug. I, I, I say I'm successfully recovered. I don't say I'm cured. Uh, some people use the word recovery in different ways, but that's I, I feel okay if I say that successfully recovered. I, I, I take my pill every night. I try to live a healthy lifestyle. And other than that, I'm, I keep going on. So, 
That's just an amazing story. I just want to step back a little bit and just ask you, you mentioned that you cycled across Canada. Did you do that for for fun <laughs> uh, or for a good cause? <laughs> uh, it was more like Forrest Gump. I just felt like running. <laughs> I, I, I sort of felt... I sort of felt a bit guilty for not doing it for any fundraiser or anything, but uh, no, it was uh, it was a group that it's a group that does it every year, tour to Canada. They've got a website; people can join up and, and do the group, uh, do the ride this coming year, twenty twenty three. Okay, fantastic. So, yeah. It probably helped your mental health. I, I might imagine at that time, exercise is is so good for mental health, but I'm not so sure that it's beneficial for um, schizophrenia, but. I don't know if it would deplete somebody or if it would actually help them to feel better. But what is the cause of schizophrenia? I'm I'm not an expert. Uh, the only official certification I have is an engineering degree. Uh, from my understanding, it, there's, there's definitely a gen- genetic component to schizophrenia. It is sometimes known to skip generations. Uh, we have found someone in the 1940s or 50s in my family who had a, a distant relative but uh, there's it, there's still a mystery around it. They have found a lot more in the brain about it, but uh, there there could be an environmental component. There's some different theories. For me, I, I really don't know. It uh, it doesn't. It's one percent worldwide, no matter what country you're in, uh, no matter your age, race, uh, socioeconomic background. Well, actually, I don't know about that. If you're uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'll I'll just stop there. <laughs> That's uh, okay. But, um, it affects men and women equally, but it affects men a little bit sooner in life. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think it's equally. I, I, uh, I'm i not 100% sure on that, but I, I think it's fairly equally. And men, mm-hmm. it can hit sort of late teens, early 20s, and women sort of late 20s, but that's not set in stone either. You can get a girl mm-hmm. who gets it at like 13, so... Oh, of course, of course. What are some, oh, oh, first, before I ask about the misconceptions about schizophrenia, because we've all seen the movies and um, things on TV that, and and also the, you know, multiple personalities and that kind of thing. But um, you said you were admitted to the hospital. Um, What symptoms brought you into the hospital that that led to the hospitalization? And, And were you diagnosed fairly rapidly or were they not quite sure what this was? I was diagnosed fairly rapidly. In a matter of weeks, they had uh, the diagnosis. I went up on my own. I was voluntary. I went up because I was, uh, for the first time, I was scared I might end my life. And I thought, that's not good. So I wanted to get out because I didn't want to do that. And so you were feel you were having suicidal thoughts? Yeah. yeah. And in addition to some of the other symptoms that you had described, sort of a blunting of your emotions and motivation issues? Yeah, so another one that uh, people might not talk about as much, at, at least in me, my vision. I felt like I was seeing things in two dimensions, not three dimensions. And that sounds maybe a bit more trippy than it really is. Um, if you threw me a ball, I could still catch it. Um, but it sort of felt like I was watching TV, and I, I think other people with schizophrenia have said this. Um, you feel like you're watching TV where you can't interact with the people on the screen. It's uh, you're just sort of watching your life go by, and you're uh, just sort of a bystander in it. Some people may say they feel disconnected, like people with other kinds of mental illness may feel they may say they feel disconnected. So, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, with a symptom like that, you, you know that this schizophrenia has to be a brain disease. 
which if someone has liver disease or kidney disease, you know, it's not as stigmatized as uh, schizophrenia is, which is just so sad. What are some of the misconceptions about this disease, this brain disease, schizophrenia? Well, one of them is uh, 75% of people with schizophrenia hallucinate, and those can be any of the five senses. Some of those uh, hallucinations can actually be quite pleasant and enjoyable. Most of them, uh, excuse me, I would say are relentlessly tormenting. I was in the 25% that didn't hallucinate, so I don't know if everybody knows that. As far as delusions go, I wouldn't really say I was deluded a whole lot or or thinking. uh, I I also wasn't classified as paranoid. I never thought the CIA was spying on me through my phone, or, or uh, but uh, there was I had anxiety and depression. As far as the biggest uh, misconception that I'd like to clear up with people is the fact that people with schizophrenia are no more prone to violence than the rest of the general population. That's that's a fact, and most people don't know that. The BC Schizophrenia Society said that that people with untreated schizophrenia, uh, probably early in their recovery, perhaps, I'm not sure, but at least untreated at some point, do have a higher rate of violence. And I don't know what that rate is. I'd like to find that out from the BC Schizophrenia Society. Is it so you, you can define violence in different terms. Uh, it's it's hard to define, actually. There's many different facets to it. It could be kicking, biting, scratching, bar fights. The rate of homicide in Canada, no matter what you what's going on in your head, whether it's schizophrenia or something else, is about, I think it's one uh, murder per 150,000 people per year. So that's still very, very low. The Saskatchewan Schizophrenia Society says that one in 5,000 people are violent in the general population, and that's the same for people with schizophrenia. Another state, uh, another stat I saw said that 2% of the population is violent. And it's the same for people with schizophrenia. So those are still very low numbers, 2% or 1 in 5,000. Matthew Dixon is my guest. He is a Canadian who has lived experience of mental illness, specifically schizophrenia. He also helps people with mental illness in developing countries get basic mental health care, which is so critical. Matthew, thank you so much for staying on the line. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Now, you've (laughs) taken your story... And you've really paid it forward, let's say. Um, You are somebody who was diagnosed, what, almost 20 years ago with schizophrenia. You've been treated. Um, You're living a great quality of life. You said that your symptoms have decreased. And you've taken, you know, what could have been a, a negative or what, you know, is oftentimes a devastating diagnosis you've turned this around and you're helping other people, especially in developing countries at mindaid.ca. Tell me a little bit about mindaid.ca. Sure. So a lady saw me at my worst in 1994 and she said, I looked like I was walking through a world of flying glass. And I was like, thanks for noticing because that's exactly what it felt like. I felt like I was living in a war zone and throughout my whole recovery, my heart went out to people with mental illness untreated mental illness at that in developing countries, in war-torn countries. I, I was having a really hard time here in Canada, in a sleepy part of Canada with an, a, you know, an okay mental health care system, at least a lot better than other countries. Mm-hmm. So, But I never, uh, uh, the first time I saw any content online about mental health in developing countries was in uh, 2017. It was a TED Talk by Vikram Patel. 
And I started researching the cause, and I found, well, anyway, I made this website, mindaid.ca, and it is the first website in the world with all the groups helping people with mental illness in developing countries on one site. They are otherwise scattered across the web, and it's, uh, I'd like to see it uh, as a hub for the cause. I would like to see more people uh, going on to it. it. It doesn't get as much traction as I'd like right now, but I'm hoping that'll change as time goes on. And the good news in this is that there are models of basic mental health care that are low cost, proven effective, and scalable. And the World Health Organization is trying to figure out the best way to roll these out to the masses. In the meantime, I found groups that are using these models. They've been helping thousands of people for years in developing countries get back up on their feet. Um, Strong Minds uses, uh, uh, helps women with depression in Africa, and they've had great success in in a matter of weeks, uh, some women can get back up on their feet. And if, if you're a woman in Africa, unable to feed your family, that's huge. And so to, um, Find Mind is another one. They're helping people in Uganda uh, get uh, mental health care. There's a, there's a number of them there, and I, and I keep finding more as time goes on. Um, some people with mental illness are actually kept in chains in some countries. Robin Williams' son, oh. Zach Williams, and some other celebrities are helping uh, promote hashtag break the chains to uh, help unchain people. There's a pledge there. People can sign. They need, uh, I think, 6,000 more signatures to uh, help do their work and whatnot. So, yeah. uh, It's incredible yeah. work. It, and, you know, I think mental illness has impacted every single person, family, if not person, out there. It is so common Yet, because it's stigmatized, we don't talk about it. We don't share our stories. People are afraid they're going to be judged or that they're going to lose their jobs or that, you know, people might think they're violent. I mean, I have a couple of patients who have been treated for schizophrenia, and they're the gentlest people that that I've ever met, you know, just lovely, gentle people. And so we have to, you know, debunk these myths about people with schizophrenia and and help them. And it, and I think it takes a compassionate person and somebody with empathy and somebody who is true to themselves and, and is honest and says, you know, I understand anxiety or depression or bipolar or schizoaffective disorder has impacted, you know, their family. And, and it's so difficult, as you mentioned, it was hard enough for you to get treatment in an okay mental health care system in a sleepy town <laughs> in Canada. But what is it like in Uganda? you know, a, a very different story. How can people help, Matthew? I've started something new, uh, meetup.com. I've made three meetup groups for three Canadian cities. They're on my website. I'd like to start more meetup groups in other cities uh, in Canada and around the world because I know there's people out there who would love to help, whether that's sharing uh-huh. a few posts right up to starting their own nonprofit, anywhere in between, to donating, fundraising, I'm trying to reach more people because I know they're out there if they simply knew where to go and how to help. So uh, there's 10 nonprofits at the at MindAid that people can donate to. There's more in the resources section that, that people can help out in various ways, but there's at least 10 you can donate to right there. Uh, I'm on many social media platforms. I'm on YouTube, TikTok, and I've got a lot of videos there. Um, the biggest thing anybody can do is simply start having conversations about it and it's not hard to fit into a conversation. Uh, people, if you, if you say, people, we, we know we've been drilling wells, building schools, uh, mosquito bed nets for people in developing countries for decades. You just throw in mental illness. Oh, okay, I get it. Sure, that's easy to understand. Uh, how can I help? How can I help? 
And uh, absolutely, I I don't think we think about there are so many other problems in developing countries. I don't think we think about their mental health and how it affects them. Matthew, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's tremendous work. And um, I wish you all the best of luck. and, And hopefully a few more people will donate to your cause tonight. After listening to my show for 11 years, I'm not inflicting guilt on anybody out there, but (laughs) if you're so inclined, go to mindaid.ca. It is a great cause. Thanks so much again, Matthew. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, I feel like this next segment was made for me me from Pennsylvania. She's a registered nurse as well. She's also a well-being coach for burnt out nurses and guides exhausted nurses to transform burnout so they don't just survive, they thrive. Good evening, Anne. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, It's time for you to be here because quite frankly, I'm feeling burnt out myself (laughs) today in particular. It just seems that the work never ends, and I'm sure a lot of nurses are feeling the same way, especially given the pandemic. May I ask you, what is the class description of the burnt-out nurse, of those um, nurses that you see and coach? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic, because burnout is now the new pandemic, Uh So a lot of us are feeling like we're stuck in survival mode. It's that exhaustion where you're just in this constant go-go mode and you can't get out of it. You don't know where to start. You're overwhelmed. You're just feeling constantly at this burnout state where you're broken almost, like the system of healthcare has broken us as nurses. We're trying to do the best we can with what we have, knowing that we're not really doing the job we want to do as a nurse. So it's that kind of physical stress of things where we're getting to the point where we're not sleeping and we're getting a little cynical. We're getting irritated and irritable with with our patients and with ourselves and not physically taking care of ourselves, not taking a lunch, not sleeping well, and kind of having that thought of like brain fog. And a lot of this leads to anxiety. It leads to depression. Uh, The kind of the main thing, though, if you can prevent exhaustion, you can actually prevent burnout. Oh, that is fantastic because, you know, I think a lot of nurses uh, need to know that because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of nurses of exhaustion or burnout and then think I have to do something about this versus being preventive about it and going into nursing perhaps and, and maybe being able to set some limits. But you're the expert here. How does a nurse prevent burnout? So a lot of this is self-care, self-love and soul care. It's hard sometimes when this profession to realize that the more we give of ourselves and not take care of ourselves, the worse everyone is, right? So we have to take that time to be able to recharge, to recoup, to actually do those little self-care practices where we can take time on our days off to do meditation, to do movement, to have some kind of practice that lets us process the stress, that's one of the biggest things. Nursing is a whole bunch of lot of, whole bunch of lot of, sorry, that's bad English, a bunch of little traumas, right? And we don't always recognize that. We have to put on this professional mask and go from one patient to the next. We might have just seen someone code. We might have had something kind of traumatic happen. 
and we're not processing these stress and they get stuck in our nervous system. And that's where the self-care practices help us to process that stress, let it out, and we're not always in that kind of survival mode of that fight or flight. We have to be able to get into that relaxed mode somehow. And a lot of us are not recognizing that we have to put ourselves first so then we can actually help all of our patients heal them, heal and get to the point where they're able to get better as well. You can't pour from an empty cup. I know that's kind of a cliche thing, but it's true. You've got to be able to fill your cup and then from that, overflow, then we can actually take care of everyone else around us. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, as a healthcare provider, in as healthcare providers in the hospital, you know, we do tend to go from, um, you know, a code to that maybe a resuscitation that was successful, then perhaps to a death, then maybe somebody has bled out. Um, maybe somebody else has arrested. Maybe then you're part of the code team and all of this on no lunch. Right. And perhaps you forgot to have breakfast as well. Um yeah. So we we have to take that time in between those traumas that that you mentioned. I mean, look at how traumatized people were to see the football player who had cardiac arrested on on the field. And people were talking about witnessing CPR, but nurses witness traumas on the daily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That actually was something that I mentioned. It's like if you thought that was, you know, football players couldn't go on with the game. And we literally put on that happy face in 30 seconds. I'm in a hospital right now. We're a one to seven ratio. I have one patient that goes bad. I have six people that are still relying on me. It's a lot of Mm -hmm. responsibility and a lot of pressures that we're putting on ourselves. And we're not recognizing that the culture of healthcare, the culture of nursing right now is we're kind of in these generational survival patterns where that's how we do it. You don't get a lunch, that's nursing. You don't take a bathroom break or drink any fluids, that's nursing. And that's where I want to start this ripple effect of really getting people to recognize what nursing really is. It's a job. It doesn't have to be our life. Um, We were put on pedestals, unfortunately, in the pandemic as superheroes. And now we kind of feel like we're at, you know, ground... (laughs) on the ground, flattened out, smushed, broken into a thousand pieces um, because of the burnout, all the pressures that were put on us. And we took them on as nurses. We were proud to take that on, not recognizing what it was really doing to us. We are all slowly killing ourselves by constantly being, you know, in that burnout survival mode. And may I add that oftentimes nurses, because it's a decent salary, are the primary breadwinners of the family. Nursing during the pandemic was so different. It changed things. Some nurses described providing nursing care during the pandemic as a roller coaster you can't seem to get off and something they never thought they would experience in their nursing career. As as you mentioned, nurses were deemed heroes, but nurses, according to research done out of UVM, uh, UVM Medical Center, who wanted to talk about their experience, did not identify with that hero identity. They did not embrace it. And why, why is that? Um, I think part of it is we knew we weren't, you know, superheroes that I am just a human trying to, you know, stay alive as well. And Mm -hmm. a lot of us, it's, this is our job. It's just us doing what we're supposed to do as a nurse. Like we don't need to be put on a high, a higher pedestal. 
But that got out there in the media and kind of like, oh, you guys are great. You guys are wonderful. And then when the hype went away, like literally we're completely forgotten about. And I mean, now we're suffering from low staffing issues as well as them, them as the hospitals and the politics that come with it, putting more pressure on us, more demands on us. And the morale is just, you know, not there. We have so many people that are leaving, like 91% of nurses are considering leaving nursing. And we're already at that point where we're going to have, you know, short staff because of the baby boomers and they knew it was coming, and, but it got, you know, kind of worse with the pandemic. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. My guest is Ann Brown. She's a registered nurse and also a well-being coach for burnt out nurses. I am Maureen McGrath a burnt out nurse myself. So I'm glad to have Anne on the line because she guides exhausted nurses all over the globe to transform burnout so they don't just survive, they thrive. This is something, this is one of the advantages of the pandemic was the fact that a lot of healthcare went online. And so fortunately, Anne Brown's service is online as well. Anne, thanks so much for staying on the line. Yeah, thanks for having me. Man is uh, joining us from Pennsylvania, where healthcare in the U.S. is big business, and it's um, and it's certainly business in Canada as well. But it's not business as usual, and in fact, we're talking about the fact that 91% of nurses are considering leaving their jobs. And I want to talk travel nursing and the impact that travel nursing has had on healthcare. We say healthcare is broken. Travel nurses are oftentimes getting twice and three times the amount of the usual hourly wage they're asked to they may be asked to travel a half an hour away from to across the country but travel nurses just fly in basically land there oftentimes i've heard hospitals say well we have travel nurses they didn't know the policies they didn't know the protocols what are some of the issues with travel nursing and why is that negatively impacting our Yeah, I think uh, uh, my floor right now, we have five travel nurses. We have, I hate to say half of our staff is travel nurses, but there's a competitor hospital across town, and we've kind of just swapped nurses as travel nurses. So you say 30 minutes, some of them are driving 15 minutes from their house um, to be travel nurses. So it's it's a good gig for money uh, from that standpoint, but you're right. There's not a lot of that team camaraderie that you get with nursing, uh, they kind of just come in and some of them are really great and want to learn the policies. Some just want to come get a paycheck. They're newer nurses too. We have some that are, you know, two years experience coming into a floor where we have complex patients. And it's like, I don't know what you know. You don't know our policies. Um, and things are getting missed. It, there is some patient safety issues, I think, that way. And then those of us that have been there, you know, kind of muscling through all of this. And our pay isn't anywhere near that. There's some morale issues there as well. There's some bitterness where the facilities are willing to pay these travel nurses all this money. But what about those of us that are still here that are been through all of this? You're barely giving me, you know, a little bit of a raise. You know, we didn't get hazard pay during the pandemic. You know, people that work you know, some of these other jobs were getting hazard pay, and I'm a nurse, and I'm not getting hazard pay. Like, there's definitely bitterness. I think the travel 
nursing things that are coming up that way and some of the politics, as I call them, are not not helping that, making it worse for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't mind that nurses are getting paid more, but I think all nurses should be getting paid more. And I really think that the right. travel nurses, that that industry has really um, negatively impacted the care of the patients in our hospitals across North America. And medical errors are one of the leading causes of death, which I don't think people realize. I think people think they're going to go to a hospital right. and everything is going to go 100%, but it doesn't. I was speaking to no. some nurses recently who were giving out patients. And, you know, typically nurses are meant to give out um, a med within an hour. You have a half an hour before the med is due, half an hour after the medication is due. But these nurses said it was taking them two and a half hours to deliver medications to 40 patients by themselves. And some of them were psych meds and other important medications that need to be given on time. And so therefore the patients weren't improving, the patients were deteriorating and, and how can you deliver nursing care when you have that much on your, on your plate? The other thing I wanted to mention is the main risk factors for burnout, which I was, I was surprised to see, um, of a meta-analysis, basically, of nurse burnout, younger age, decreased social support, low family and colleagues' readiness to cope with the COVID-19 outbreak, increased perceived threat of COVID-19, no long, longer working time in quarantine areas and working in a high-risk environment, and working in hospitals with inadequate and insufficient material and human resources, increased workload and lower level of specialized training regarding COVID-19. You've basically described all of that in your uh, situation right now. Right. Yeah. And it's very true that uh, a lot of these newer nurses that are coming in, it's a moral injury thing too. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but we're coming in and we want to do this job and we're going to save people and we're not getting the right tools to do that. We don't have the right staff to do that. You mentioned the two hours to pass meds, 100% accurate. When you have a one to seven, one to eight ratio on a med surge floor, here's your meds. Um, I'll be back to see you. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a higher chance of error, higher chance of falls. We're not going to catch things. Um, any patient um, load over one to five, it's a 25% increase of mortality. I, I hate wow, to even I say that, but that. It, it's, a, it's a bad time to be getting sick and to be a patient. It really is. And at some point, the nurses are going to get to the point where we're going to start being the patients because we're still in this very stressful environment. COVID maybe has, quote unquote, went away, but the effects on our mental health, our physical health, I think will be um, years down the road before we kind of recover from it. And it's true, the younger nurses just don't have that base of support and kind of, you know, experience to know how to kind of deal with some of us. And those of us that have been there for a while have pushed down all those emotions so much that it's coming out in physical um, issues with our health. And a lot of things are autoimmune related. Our body just mm -hmm. can't deal with the stress, but it, it comes out in some kind of health issues. And that's what I personally have went through. Oh, wow. I did not realize that you had gone through it yourself. Um, yeah. According to the meta-analysis, nurses burnout and associated risk factors during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
It um, was 16 studies included close to 20,000 nurses that met the inclusion criteria. And I was surprised to see the overall prevalence of emotional exhaustion was 34% of depersonalization was 12.6% and lack of personal Mm -hmm. accomplishment, 15.2%. We need to be really worried about nurses. And now I'm worried about you. (laughs) Well, I'm on the recovery side of things. I have five years. Um, from my what I call my rock bottom moment, um, and that was pre-pandemic. I've luckily got through everything pre-pandemic of a lot of this stuff and have worked through it uh, myself. But the mental health of the nurses, um, those statistics, I'm like, I'm surprised they're not higher, um, to be honest. Uh, people are just leaving the bedside because this isn't what I signed up for, and the stressors that are there and the stigma that comes with asking for help too, right? There's such a stigma right. with saying, hey, I'm not doing okay. Um, and, you know, we don't want to speak up for ourselves and kind of get, get to that point where we want, we have to admit that something's not right with us, right? I'm a nurse. I got this. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. It's kind of been we have about, our, our mantra. We have about one minute left. Um, what's the one thing, one <laughs> tip that you would give to nurses and then how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I kind of mentioned the whole thing of prevent exhaustion, prevent burnout. That is so true. But to recognize where you are, uh, if you're headed towards burnout, if you're feeling stressed, do something right now. You can make a change right now. If you don't make that change, it will lead you to having health issues. We are, as I said, slowly killing ourselves by not processing our stress and not dealing with all of that. Um, and the best way to get in touch with you? Me- yeah, um, if you uh, hop on uh, practice.do slash me slash Ann dash Brown. Uh, all my links are on that page. And, and I found you on LinkedIn. So Ann Brown, thank you so much. I really appreciate all of you on the program and stay well. You too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, coming up next, we're going to be talking about a very important health subject. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.